Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thanks for joining us for this Therapeutic Thursday podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Wendy C., and I am the Medication Safety Officer at City of Hope National Medical Center in Duarte, California, and I'll be your host for today's episode. With me today is Doreen Pond, an oncology pharmacist, Associate Professor of Pharmacy Practice and Administration at Western University of Health Sciences, and Faculty in Residence at City of Hope National Medical Center. Thanks for joining us today, Doreen. Let's go ahead and get started into today's topic drug interactions with oral anti-cancer medications. So Doreen, why do you think pharmacists who don't work in an oncology setting need to be concerned about drug interactions with cancer therapeutic agents? I mean, isn't this something that oncology pharmacists should be screening for? Yeah, thanks for the question, Wendy. So we're really seeing a paradigm shift in oncology with more of these targeted therapies that are aimed at trying to control specific cellular abnormalities that are actually causing the cancer, rather than just non-specifically killing cells by interfering with cell division. And a lot of these more targeted therapies, they're oral medications that patients have to take on a chronic basis. And so because these medications tend to be taken on a chronic basis, potential interactions can occur with other medications when they're either added or discontinued. So for that reason, I think all pharmacists, not just oncology pharmacists, really need to be aware of potential interactions to look out for. Great point. So first thing that comes to mind when talking about drug interactions are cytochrome P450 interactions. Is this an issue with oral anti-cancer medications? Yeah, sure. So one that comes to mind that got a lot of press was um, an interaction involving tamoxifen. So tamoxifen is an endocrine therapy that many women have to take for five or more years after receiving cytotoxic chemotherapy as part of their adjuvant therapy for breast cancer. And tamoxifen is really important because it has been shown to help reduce the risk for recurrence of a patient's breast cancer and help to improve survival. So there's a couple of interesting things about tamoxifen. One is that it's a prodrug and it needs to be converted to its active form by cytochrome P450-2D6. Another thing is that um, one of the major side effects of tamoxifen is menopausal symptoms, including things like hot flashes. And drugs like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, can often be helpful in helping to reduce these hot flashes that are caused by um, women taking tamoxifen. But some SSRIs, are actually strong inhibitors of CYP2D6. So there has been some concern about whether or not patients who are taking tamoxifen concurrently with SSRIs that are strong inhibitors of CYP2D6, could they have some reduced activation of tamoxifen and therefore be at increased risk for breast cancer recurrence? So there actually have been a couple of large population-based studies that have looked at this particular question. Um, and women who are taking tamoxifen and strong CYP2D6 inhibitors, and they haven't shown any increased risk for breast cancer recurrence. But because there is really still a theoretical concern, what I would recommend is actually avoiding these strong CYP2D6 inhibitors, such as paroxetine and fluoxetine, and choosing agents that are 
not strong CYP2D6 inhibitors such as citalopram or bemlafaxine instead. Now, if a patient is taking a strong CYP2D6 inhibitor drug for depression, for example, and they're stabilized on that, then what I'd recommend is really discussing the available evidence about the potential for the interaction with the patient and engaging in some shared decision-making. So what about any other potential interactions like cytochrome P453A4 interactions? Yeah, sure. So there's been really an explosion of these so-called small molecule targeted therapies. There's over 90 of these small molecule drugs for treatment of cancer that are currently on the market. These include drugs like tyrosine kinase inhibitors or TKI, TNEB-type drugs, osimertinib, amatinib, dasapinib, for example, and also cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitors or cyclib, like palbocyclib, ribocyclib. Now, most of these drugs undergo hepatic metabolism, and many are also major substrates for CYP3A4. So a good rule of thumb is to check for potential CYP interactions if you have a patient who might be receiving one of these types of medications. Now, many of these agents are CYP substrates, but some can also be CYP inhibitors or inducers also. Of note, enzalutamide, which is an anti-androgen that's used for the treatment of prostate cancer, this one is actually considered a very strong inhibitor of CYP3A4, so one to watch out for. What about QTC prolongation, another pharmacist's favorite? Yeah, so great question. So many of these targeted small molecule drugs that we've just talked about are also commonly associated with causing QTC prolongation. So when you see a patient on these TNIB or cyclib-type drugs, you really have to think about potential for CYP interactions and also potential for QTC prolongation. So for our listeners out there, can you recommend a good reference for finding information about these medications that can cause QT prolongation? I mean, where do you look? So one reference that I really like is called Credible Meds, and this is available online, and it's freely accessible, it's regularly updated, and you can find a lot of good information about the risk for QTC prolongation with different medications. And what are some other factors to keep in mind when assessing a patient's risk for developing drug-induced QTC prolongation? So there's also some patient-dependent factors that can be associated with an increased risk for drug-induced QTC prolongation. So these include things like female sex and older age. Also, electrolyte abnormalities like low potassium or low magnesium can also increase a patient's risk. So in patients who are taking um, medications with a high risk for QTC prolongation, electrolytes should be monitored pretty regularly. Another thing is the number of medications that a patient might be taking that have a risk for QTC prolongation. So the more number of meds, the greater the risk. And in oncology patients, a lot of times um, oncology patients might be taking multiple medications with a risk for QTC prolongation, such as antiemetic agents, for example, like serotonin blocking agents or um, dopamine receptor antagonist type drugs. And both of these drugs can be associated with a risk for QTC prolongation. All very important factors to consider. So what should pharmacists recommend then regarding drug-induced QTC prolongation? So there's really no hard and fast rule, but what can be recommended is if a patient is receiving a drug with a high risk for QTC prolongation 
or if they're taking multiple QTC prolonging drugs, then what I would recommend is check an electrocardiogram at baseline. And then after the patient would be expected to reach a steady state concentration of that medication that can cause QT prolongation, then check another electrocardiogram. If the QTC is above the upper limit of normal, then take a look at electrolyte and try to correct any electrolyte abnormalities. If the patient is taking multiple QTC prolonging agents, try to see if you can discontinue any of the non-essential medications. Now, if the patient's QTC goes above 500 milliseconds, then really at that point, you need to uh, hold all of those QTC prolonging medications until the QTC uh, returns back to within the normal range. You mentioned electrocardiogram. When I look at those ECG reports at my facility, I've noticed that the QTC is reported in a couple different ways. Why is that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So it turns out that the QT interval is affected by the heart rate. So if you have a shorter QT interval um, at fast heart rate, then you'll have a longer QT interval at slower heart rate. So therefore, the QT interval is corrected uh, for the heart rate as a better assessment of the risk for arrhythmias. Now, there's a couple of different formulas that can be used to correct the QT, but all seem to have some potential drawbacks. The one that seems to be most widely used is called Bazet, but it seems to undercorrect at slow heart rate and overcorrect at fast heart rate. Another formula that can be used is called Fredericia, but this one also appears to be less reliable at fast heart rate. And there's some other methods as well, such as Hodges and Framingham. All of them represent some tr attempts to try to improve over previous formulas, but all of these methods seem to show some rate-dependent biases. So what I would say is that overall, even though Bizet seems to be one of the most widely used formulas for correcting the QT, it appears to actually be the least accurate method. Very interesting. As we move on to our next topic, since these anti-cancer medications are being taken orally, are there any issues with oral absorption that we should be aware of? Yeah, sure. So one specific example that comes to mind is abiraterone. So this is an oral medication that is taken chronically and used for the treatment of prostate cancer. Now, if you look at the package insert, it recommends taking the medication on an empty stomach. But if you look at some of the absorption data for the drug, it's actually been found that oral absorption is greatly increased when you take it with a high-fat meal. It's almost 10 times increased absorption. But because the dosing for abiraterone was established using a fasted state, we really need to advise patients to take their dose on an empty stomach as taking it with food could actually greatly increase blood concentration and increase the risk for adverse effects. There's actually quite a few other drugs that are like this as well where absorption looks like it might be better with food, but then the labeling indicates that the medication should be taken on an empty stomach. With abiraterone, you also have to watch out for um, different formulations. So currently, there are two different formulations of abiraterone on the market. There's a micronized formulation, which was actually an attempt to improve on the oral absorption of the medication. Now, this one is going to be less affected by the presence of food and can actually be taken with or without food. So the micronized formulation is a little bit different from the non-micronized formulation. 
So anyway, the bottom line really is follow the administration instructions that are on the package insert, even if it looks like absorption could be approved if patients took a medication with food, if the dosing for the medication was based on a fasted state, then we really have to have patients mimic those dosing conditions as much as possible. Now, another interaction that I want to talk about is one with acid suppressive therapy, such as protein pump inhibitors or H2 blocking drugs. So many, but not all, of the tyrosine kinase inhibitor drugs are better absorbed in an acidic environment. With some of these drugs, like dostatinib and acalabrutinib, for example, use of proton pump inhibitors is actually contraindicated. But we know that sometimes PPIs, they really can't be stopped in patients. So what can you do in these situations? So if acid blocking therapies have to be given concurrently, you want to try to give the tyrosine kinase inhibitor during a time when acid suppression might be the least, like, for example, near the end of a dosing interval for the PPI or the H2 blocker. You can also try to give the TKI with an acidic beverage like a cola drink, for example, and this will be help to temporarily decrease the gastric pH and improve oral absorption. Thank you for those recommendations. Now, what if I am managing a patient on anticoagulation? Are there any oral anti-cancer medications I should watch out for? Sure, so that's a very relevant question because some types of cancer and cancer therapies can actually increase the risk for thrombosis. So it's not uncommon that oncology patients will need to be on anticoagulation. So let's start off with warfarin. There can be some uh, significant interactions with warfarin. For example, Lexicomp considers tamoxifen to be a category X interaction with warfarin due to increased bleeding risk related to inhibition of warfarin metabolism, resulting in an increase in the INR. But this is something that we know that if there's close monitoring, this combination could be feasible. Now, um, another medication that can interact with warfarin is teixitabine, which is an oral prodrug of fluorouracil. This can also inhibit warfarin metabolism. But what makes teixitabine especially problematic is that teixitabine is usually dosed on an intermittent schedule. So something like the patient takes two weeks on of the medication and then they have one week off from the medication. So this can make dosing warfarin even more challenging and trying to find a stable dose a little bit more challenging in these patients. There's also a class of medications that target something called brutin tyrosine kinase. And some examples are um, ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, xenobrutinib. These are used to treat certain types of lymphomas or chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Now, what's interesting about these medications is that they strongly inhibit platelet aggregation and by themselves have a pretty high risk for bleeding. And when you use them in combination with anticoagulation or other drugs that inhibit platelet aggregation, there can be a greatly increased risk for bleeding. So watch out for patients who are on these types of medications, and they might need to be monitored a little bit more closely for signs and symptoms of bleeding. As we know, there is a lot of patient interest in the use of antioxidant supplements. What should I recommend when patients who are on oral anti-cancer medications ask about taking these supplements? Yeah, so a lot of patients are interested in antioxidants because 
They think that it will help them to stay healthy and they contain substances such as vitamin A, C, E, selenium, coenzyme Q10, glutathione, for example. And um, there is interest because, you know, maybe some of these antioxidants, they might help to actually reduce the toxicity of certain cytotoxic chemotherapy medications. Unfortunately, these antioxidants can also potentially interfere with the anti-cancer efficacy of these cytotoxic chemotherapy medications as well. So many of these traditional cytotoxic chemotherapy meds like cyclophosphamide and etoposide, they produce free radicals. And this can be the mechanism by which they cause the death of cancer cells. Now, if a patient is taking an antioxidant supplement, the antioxidant could potentially neutralize these free radicals that are being produced by the cytotoxic chemotherapy and thereby reduce some of the anti-cancer activity of the drug. Is this mostly a theoretical concern or is there any data to support this? So there actually have been two observational studies, both involving women with breast cancer receiving cytotoxic chemotherapy. And in the first study, they showed that concurrent antioxidant supplementation was associated with an increased risk of death and worsened recurrence-free survival. In the other study, they showed a similar trend towards increased risk for recurrence, although that didn't reach statistical significance. So overall, to me, I feel that the potential negative effects of antioxidants outweigh any potential benefit. And for me, I probably recommend against antioxidant supplementation while patients are receiving cytotoxic chemotherapy medication. Well, thank you so much, Doreen, for joining us for today's episode of Therapeutic Thursdays. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's clinical resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings, such as resource centers, including those on critical care, nutrition support, opioid management, infectious diseases, and more. Other offerings include the Credentialing and Privileging Resource Center, the Preceptor Toolkit, and forums such as the ASHP section of Inpatient Care Practitioners Connect Community, where you can exchange ideas and post questions with your peers. Thanks again for tuning in for this session of Therapeutic Thursdays, and join us here every Thursday where we will be talking to content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Be sure to subscribe to ASHP Podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on 